Um, there is kind of a new spirit on campus this week. Have you sensed it? Something has blown in, not just the polar vortex part two. Um, there's this buildup of anticipation this week. Since this is my first fall here, I'm noticing it for the first time. As if everyone's just kind of waiting to exhale when the clock will strike and that fateful day will be declared, it is reading week. <laughs> you want to say it with me? Say reading week. Reading week. Isn't that just beautiful liturgy on your lips? <laughs> of course, the rest of this nation has no idea what an important week you're all anticipating. They mistakenly think that the highlight of this coming week is just a little thing called Thanksgiving. And this coming season of Thanksgiving has come to be known not just as a season of intentional gratitude, not just as a week known by desperate seminary students wanting to catch up on volumes of reading they have yet to achieve, but it's become known for what, where I'm from, we call the three Fs. Do you know the three Fs? Food, family, what's the third one? Football, Football that's right. It is a secondary trinity, certainly, but a holy one, indeed. <laughs> I believe we have a, a picture of Norman Rockwell's iconic painting of Thanksgiving. It's called Freedom from Want. And here we see two of the three depicted, food and family, and we can only assume that the TV is waiting in the next room for the meal to be consumed, that football can wait for food and family, although the Cowboys are playing, they need to hurry and get through that turkey. <laughs> uh, this painting has become an American icon of sorts, a picture of what people believe that Thanksgiving maybe should look like and how families should behave at holiday times. Uh, the truth is that the holiday season that begins this next week and continues into the next month um, isn't quite so cheery a picture for many families. It brings more mixed feelings than just this picture of sunny happiness that Norman Rockwell painted. Here in the Asbury community, many of us are longing to be with family that we can't be with in this season. Family that's separated either by a few miles or by an entire ocean for many or even separated by the loss of family members who won't be at the table this year. For others, family has never been quite this picturesque. It's been a place more of struggle and conflict rather than peace, of rejection rather than acceptance. Even Norman Rockwell himself, who is famous for painting American culture in this beautiful picturesque way, even Norman Rockwell actually came from the wrong side of the tracks in New York. His home life was emotionally and economically unstable, and these images that he painted represented more nostalgia, a wish for him, something that he had never really experienced personally. And maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you've had a family history that was in some way less than ideal, one that you needed to heal from rather than start with a solid foundation from. Or maybe you're someone who's had a pretty normal family experience, nothing too far out of the ordinary. Maybe there are a few black sheep here and there in your family tree. But for the most part, you've been blessed by the family that you have, those who have loved on you and given you a stable foundation to build on. 
And maybe, maybe you're one of those proud few who consider yours to be the perfect family the family around that table, perhaps you're thinking, you know, there is not even a moderately gray sheep in my family, much less a black sheep. And if you're thinking along those lines, I want to encourage you, just remember, there's at least one in every family. And if you don't know who it is, chances are it's you. <laughs> well, there was no question what kind of family Joseph came from. There was no pretending in his family that there was any kind of picture of Norman Rockwell's beautiful scene. In his family, in Joseph's family, there were more black sheep than white, more conflict than peace, much more struggle than support. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and that should tell us something right there. Lest you think naively that any family with 12 brothers could be a Norman Rockwell painting, that in a family full of boys, that their Christmas card pictures might look something like this. Do we have a family of boys? Um, consider that no two brothers have ever stood still and smiled at a camera and put their arms around each other's necks for long before the strangling began. So I am pretty sure this photo is photoshopped. Or perhaps that these boys were bribed with chocolate, which does work temporarily. I would hazard to say that a family of 12 brothers, a Christmas card photo doesn't look like this, but perhaps like this different one. <laughs> now this is more like it. This is a more fitting modern depiction of those 12 sons of Jacob. They were actually more like a band of outlaws. And if you wanted to get more realistic in a picture like this, all the guns would be pointing at Joseph. Joseph always seemed to end up on the wrong side of the battles in this family filled with testosterone. Joseph was the son of their father Jacob's old age, the longed-for and prayed-for son of his favorite wife, and Joseph was his father's favorite. John Ortberg brings the story up to date for us in this way. When Joseph walked into a room... His dad's eyes lit up. His face would beam. Joseph was the one that their dad would brag about. Jacob, their father, he knew how Joseph was doing in school. He knew how his teachers, who his teachers were, what his friends' names were, but when asked about the other boys' lives, the details got a little fuzzy. In a hundred ways, in ways that most parents are not even aware of, but that kids can smell a mile away, Jacob's favoritism of Joseph leaked out everywhere into this family. And then one day, it raised its head in a concrete form when Jacob gave Joseph a coat, this brand new coat that was really something special in a family where certainly things were handed down from brother to brother as they outgrew things what is the 11th of 12 boys doing with a brand new coat? Remember that Joseph wasn't the oldest, but he was the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife. And it seemed like his father might be passing over all the other brothers and making Joseph his heir, ignoring the mother of the other brothers, the one who had been given to him as a trick bride ignoring her as if she never even existed. 
Now, before we have too much pity on Joseph, he didn't make things easier on himself, did he? To make matters much worse, he was a dreamer. And the dreams that he had, well, they wouldn't have been such a problem, except he didn't really know how to keep his mouth shut. We can't be sure whether it was pride or stupidity or youth, but he was a 17-year-old boy at the time, and that explains a lot. So instead of keeping quiet, instead he, he gathers his brothers together, his brothers who have no coats, his brothers who have been desperately hurt by their father and who can't stand that Joseph is their favorite, and he begins to describe these dreams in technicolor. And these dreams that he felt the need to tell them about, they were always the ones where the brothers were circling him, orbiting him as if he were the center of the universe, bowing down before him. You can only imagine the band of outlaws and their reaction. Things between these brothers started to get bad, really bad. Genesis 37, 8 puts it this way, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. I love how polite the Bible is sometimes. Isn't that the nicest way you could possibly put that? They could not speak a kind word to him. Can you imagine what they actually did speak? Ten older brothers ganging up on Joseph. What did that sound like? What if scripture had recorded for us the unkind words that they did speak? What would we be reading here? in Genesis 37. It gets so bad that these brothers even contemplate murdering Joseph, but they decide at the last minute, not for his benefit, but their own, to make a profit off of him, selling him into slavery, which might have meant he was as good as dead anyway, with the harrowing trek across the desert in a band of slaves. And then they take the coat, the father's precious gift. They dip it in the blood of a slaughtered animal. They rip it apart as they must have been wanting to do. And they bring it to old Jacob, their father. And that coat, which has been the father's pride and joy, turned into a piece that symbolized sorrow and anguish, that blood-stained did the brothers ever gain the love of the father that they longed for? Or did they only lose a brother? Did they only have to watch their father grieve as if his son were dead, knowing that they were the cause of that grief? And then Joseph, he went from favored son to slave. Then he was falsely accused of being a sexual predator and then wrongfully imprisoned and left to rot in jail. These are unthinkable and cruel acts by those who are supposed to love and protect him, and instead, he ends up needing protection from them. What a family, right? I mean, if this is helping you feel a little better about your own family, maybe it's doing some good. The little conflicts you've had, the annoying things your own siblings do, do they seem pretty small compared to this? It makes our own families seem quite better in comparison. And, and Joseph's story, it's really only a single snapshot of this family's crazy history. He is the last major generation of Genesis, which is a family story, right? Full of crazy antics 
of a single dysfunctional family. I mean, think about it. Jacob's sons came by their deceptive and murderous nature pretty naturally. You can take a look back at this family's history and just mark it by their sibling relationships. Their ancestors, the first sibling relationship, Cain and Abel. First brothers, first murder. That's how it starts. Isaac and Ishmael, one brother cast out into the desert to die for fear that he would be a competing heir. Then in just the one generation before, there's two great sibling stories, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, stories that pit brother against brother, sister against sister, one on one. And in fact, if Jacob, the father of these 12 boys, he had such jealousy for what his own brother Esau had that one day when he was young and upset because Esau was his father's favorite son, one day he slaughtered an animal and took its skins and his brother's clothes and he deceived his father who was old and blind. Does that sound familiar? To take an animal and your brother's clothes and deceive your father? Maybe that's where they got the idea in the first place. Jacob did it first before it was done to him. And his sons did it in the next generation. Jacob was known as Jacob the deceiver, and his act of betrayal split this family apart. You might think that he would have said to himself when he had his own children, I have seen the destructiveness that happens when favorites are played in a family. It's going to end with me. No more. You might think. But instead, he just continues right along in this family history from Cain and Abel to Jacob and Esau to Rachel and Leah and finally to Joseph and his brothers. This pattern keeps getting passed down generation to generation. When I was about 10 or 12 years old, my grandfather taught me to drive. Don't worry, it wasn't on the highway. <laughs> My grandfather's brother had a ranch out in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and he would take me and my cousin Holly, and he would put us behind the wheel of his old pickup truck and let us drive down the roads of the back pasture. And I felt so grown up having driven my first pickup at 12 years old until I overheard my grandfather talking to my father when he came to pick me up after the visit, probably trying to justify why he had let his preteen daughter behind the wheel of a car. He told my dad, don't worry about it. He said, I could drive that truck from the house to the back pasture and back with my eyes closed and my hands off the wheel because of the deep ruts in the road. He said that it was almost impossible to drive off the path because the ruts had been so worn deeply in that road after years of trucks following the same route. I do remember, though, that he told about getting a call from a friend who was on the property a few weeks later who warned him, you know, some drunk must have been out on your land a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Judging by the tracks that we left weaving up in and out of those ruts, my grandfather got a good chuckle out of that one. Our families develop well-worn patterns through the generations, patterns that teach us how to navigate life. Sometimes they are helpful and healthy patterns, those day-to-day -day lessons of how to live and how to love, the perennial traditions that we have that many of you will be taking up in these next months, 
how to celebrate with family in ways that are unique and fun. But there are other patterns too, aren't there? There are things that aren't so commendable. There are families where abuse weaves a damaging line through the generations, where addiction pops up again and again on the road. Some patterns are more subtle. They can be the way that parents deal with money or food, gossip or jealousy or feelings of rejection. But all of these patterns somehow make their way to us. And when there's only one way of living that we've been taught, it's hard to change, isn't it? It's sometimes easier to just keep driving in the ruts that are well-worn into our family path. One of the great jobs of families is to socialize us, to make us fit for society, to hand us a script and tell us how we are supposed to do things. Uh, Lord knows that I say to my four-year-old enough times, we don't act that way in public. That is not how Lagrones do things. Lagrones are polite. We look people in the eye when we talk to them. We are a well-behaved clan. We do not, for example, take our super soakers out to the road behind the seminary and wait to see who drives by with their windows down. <laughs> Nathan Weaver, my continued apologies for your wet upholstery. When I tell my son again and again how our family acts, I am handing him our script, telling him the part that he is supposed to play as he grows. I am giving him ruts to drive in until he can steer for himself. Ruts are a great way to help you navigate life. They are great to help you learn the path. They are great until you want to go somewhere different anyone has gone before. In Joseph's family, the ruts are so deep that we begin to wonder, is there any hope for them? We might even ask, why does God bother? Why bother with this family whose legacy is spelled out in the entire first book of the Bible? The way that God introduces himself to the world is through his relationship with this family. I mean, if you're going to pick a family to embody the story of creation, God's covenant with his people, to give a picture of God's calling and the way he wants to live in relationship, why pick this family? Why not find the perfect family? I mean, why not seek out the perfect family to carry out God's will and be blessed to be a blessing to the world? The answer to that one should be obvious. There is no perfect family. We all have flaws in our scripts. We all have ruts we've been driving in for generations. We all have sinned, all of our families, and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, and yet, the biblical narrative gives us evidence again and again that families are important to God. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Miriam and Abraham, Joseph and Mary, the Son of God, could have come to earth in any way he chose to be incarnate, but he chose a family, didn't he? He chose this family. Families are the tool that God uses to show us how much he loves us. 
You see, God knew that we would never understand the love of an invisible God until we experienced the love of visible people again and again. Or to put it another way, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. And this next part, I think, reads a bit like a job description for families. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you would be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. That Christ would dwell in your hearts as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you'll have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, to know the unknowable so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When our families are operating well, isn't that what they do? They strengthen us, they fill us, they help us to know the unknowable love of God. And every family on earth is supposed to take our name from the Father in heaven. He's handing us a script. This is how your family acts. Lagrones act this way, I tell my son. God's children act this way, he tells us. Every family on earth should act in concert with my name, my character, my love. I want you to be so rooted and grounded deeply in that love that you will know the unknowable love of God. Where are we even supposed to learn something that is unknowable? How do we grasp God's love? We learn it in families. The ones who begin to whisper in our ears from the day we're born how precious, how special, how loved we are, not because we've done anything yet to earn or deserve it, but because we belong to them. Families help us internalize God's love before we ever know God by name. Families are the most amazing tools of prevenient grace when they're working right. But sometimes they don't, right? Sometimes our families don't model for us the love of God. And sometimes in a great reversal, we are given a chance to model it for them instead. Joseph went through countless years as a slave, then a prisoner, then finally he was freed and in this surprising twist elevated to a position of great leadership in Egypt. And it was there in that place in this position of great power that his brothers came, not knowing who he was, and knelt down before him, just like the dreams that he had described. And it was then that Joseph had a choice. What would he do about the problem of his family? Sometimes I wish I could read the Bible again for the first time. Have you ever had that wish? Do you ever wish that you could weep over the story of the crucifixion without knowing what happened in three days? If you could read Joseph's story again for the first time without knowing what was on the last page, I guarantee you would be caught in suspense in this moment. This is a real nail-biter of a story because when his brothers appear before him not knowing who he is, here is the pattern that emerges. He falsely accuses one of them just as he has been falsely accused. He wrongfully imprisons one of them just as he has been wrongfully imprisoned. 
He even threatens to take Benjamin, the youngest, as his slave, just as he's been sold into slavery. Knowing that losing Benjamin, the other favored son, would devastate and probably kill their father, just as the brothers had devastated him by taking Joseph away. Every little calculated step that Joseph does here, probably things he's thought through for years in the depths of prison, every sign points to revenge, that he wants to get back at them for what they've done. Will he forgive or will he take vengeance into his own hands? And the turning point comes, amazingly, just as he threatens to keep Benjamin as a slave to himself and sends the rest of them home to break their father's heart again. Just as he makes this threat over Benjamin, that's when one brother steps up. It's Judah. Judah throws himself on his brother's mercy, not knowing that it's his brother. If you do not let Benjamin return, he says, it will surely kill our father. Please, I plead with you, please don't break our father's heart. I'll take Benjamin's place. Take my life instead of his. Let me stay. Put me in prison. Make me a slave. Do whatever you want to me, but don't harm my brother. That was the moment that broke Joseph. It was Judah's sacrifice. Joseph broke down and wept. He revealed himself to his brothers and embraced him and forgave them for all they had done. Sacrifice changes people. It moves people. It breaks us out of our rut of self-interest and competition and resentment. And it wakes us up to the possibility that we can give ourselves to others in a way that we had never imagined. Sacrificing our own need to be right, to pay back what's been done to us, these are the things that heal families. And of the 12 tribes of Judah that, I mean, of the 12 tribes of Israel that these brothers came to represent, Jesus would be born not into a powerful tribe descended from Joseph or a priestly tribe of Levi. He was born into Judah's tribe, the tribe of sacrifice, of laying down one's life. Sacrifice changes us. It changes our families. It changes the world. It's the only thing that ever has. And just like that, Joseph drove out of the rut. He rejected the way of Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah. He embraced the way of sacrifice and of love. He laid down his desire for competition and revenge. And his family was different forever. And we are different forever because of that. Every family needs a Joseph. Every family needs someone who looks back at the past and forward to the present and puts their foot down and says, no more. We will not be that way anymore. This is no longer our script. People who don't let the script of the past get passed down to the future. Is there a Joseph in your family? Anyone? Can you look back and see any person or generation where something turned or something changed? Or maybe, maybe if you look at your family carefully, maybe it's you. 
Maybe you are Joseph. Maybe God is using this time in your life, this place, to form in you a change of heart, a new script that will mean that generations after you will be different in your family because you chose to live in a different way, because you chose to embrace the depth and height and breadth of God's love. How is God going to do that in us? How do we jump out of the ruts? How does he give us this new vision of what our family can be in the future despite what it has been in the past? Where do you go to erase entire chunks of the script and embrace the new script God has for us? Where do you go? You go to church. You go to community. You go to this family of choice where we witness each other love and sacrifice, where we learn from one another's families in a new and different way, where we whisper to each other the love and acceptance that we should have heard from the beginning, and we tell each other and act for each other again and again the height and depth and breadth of the love of God until we have the courage to finally believe it. God can give you a new script, and it happens in community. It happens in families of choice, people who go from stranger to friend to family in places like this, where you catch a glimpse of someone else's life and love and decide you want to learn from it yourself. Uh, last weekend, I, I took my four-year-old Drew to a birthday party for one of his classmates, Brody. And it was a little different from other parties we had been to because Brody has severe cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair. It was possibly the most beautiful children's birthday party I've ever been to. At Brody's party, a woman greeted us at the door and introduced herself to us. Just call me Nana, she said. Nana was clearly an active part of Brody's everyday life. She talked about him uh, taking him to therapy. During the party, she encouraged him and pushed him to do things that were just on the edge of his abilities. She helped Brody's mom with the ins and outs of a child's party that a mother desperately needs help with, even if their child has no disability. And after a while, I found myself in a corner in conversation with Nana. So whose mother are you? I asked. Brody's mom or his dad's? Oh, she said, you, you don't know. I was the labor and delivery nurse in the hospital when Brody was born. Brody was very premature. He was born at 25 weeks gestation. He was in the hospital for 100 days, and his mama had recently lost her own mom, and she was going to need a lot of help. And so I became his nana. When we moved here from West Virginia last year, Brody's mom and dad followed because we're the closest thing to family that they have. For this reason... I bow my knee before the Father from whom this family takes its name, the name Nana, the name Joseph, the name Judah, the name Sacrifice, the name Jesus, so that you may know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that is unknowable, that surpasses all knowledge, and so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.